I'm going to do something a little different to start this morning. Um, I've been weighing this thought for a while. It's, we're still doing Romans, so, but um, I've really felt encouraged in the past couple of years to think about how we read the Word. And so whenever I preach, I would like to read the passage that we're going to do first, and if everybody would stand as we read, I think it would be a way of physically demonstrating our belief that God's Word is straight from Him. And so I think this would be a good way for us to read the Word in one fell swoop, and then we'll sit down and pray. So if everybody would stand as we read Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So you can sit, be seated, and we'll pray. Father, we are thankful that you give us your word. We're thankful that we can hear from you. That every time we pick up your word to read, Lord, we're not reading a dead word. We're reading a word that has been illuminated by your Holy Spirit to your people. Lord, a word that you have revealed to us outside of the world. They, they may be able to read these words, but because they do not have your spirit, they cannot understand what they're reading, Lord. So we just pray that this morning you would illumine our, art, our hearts, allow our spirits to hear your word, to be convicted, to be encouraged, and to be strengthened, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, and we believe, Lord, that you will speak to us this morning. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the last couple of weeks that I have preached, we came to a conclusion, two conclusions. First, Gentiles are sinners who will be judged by God. And then the next week, we found out that Jews are sinners who will be judged by God. So what's the obvious question that we should be asking now? It's the question that Paul gives us in verse 1. He's saying, if they're both going to be judged by God equally, if God is still going to judge them both, then what advantage... Right there in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what was the benefit of the sign of circumcision? 
I mean, that's a pretty obvious question, right? Like, if, if they had all this, if, if they had God's sign, covenant sign, what was the purpose? Did it even have any value? Was being a Jew the same as being a Gentile? That's the question I believe Paul is trying to, to get to. And he says, in verse 2, he answers that question. He says, great in every respect. So a lot of people today in many denominations are pushing the Jews out of the picture. They're saying, well, the church took over the place of the Jews. And I think that's wrong. I, I believe Paul throughout the book of Romans shows us that God, especially if you look later on in chapter 11, that God still has a remnant of the Jews. He's also saving Jews today. But there is going to be a remnant that all of Israel will come to Christ. But that being the case, he says, great in every respect. Like, there is no way that we can say that they didn't have an advantage. And why? He gives us right here the, the first and foremost reason. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were tr entrusted with the oracles of God. So, the biggest advantage that the Jews have always had is God's revelation. And this idea of entrusting, it's the same word that means to believe. It's, exact, it's the exact same word. It's just God is trusting them with His word. Isn't that interesting? This is a reverse. Typically, we're trusting God, but in this case, God is entrusting them with His word. He's giving them His word as a sign of his trust in them. So, what was the purpose? What, what, why would you trust someone with something? Just name off something. If you gave something to someone, what, what are you trusting them to do? Take care of it, so guard it. What, what else could you do? Huh? They're relying on you. So they're trusting that you're going to preserve it, that you're going to guard it, and that you specifically are going to be a good steward of it. Right? Just like the parable of the, the three men, got the, the man, the master of the house, he gave one, how many? Do you remember how many talents? One. To each one, right? But what happened? Or maybe it was five, three. I, I can't remember the number because I, this just came to my mind. So <laughs> I apologize. But in the end, one had doubled. I think the first one had five. Five, two, and one. I've got uh, help in the back. So <laughs> the one man was given five. And what did he do? He doubled the number that he had. He had been given talents. I remember uh, Mr. Sollinger preached a really good message on how our talents are opportunities that God gives us. So the Jews were entrusted with God's word with a purpose. 
of multiplying that word, of, of seeing God's faithfulness in that word. In the same way as the, the man who was given five, he came back and he had ten. And then you have um, the second guy came back with, I think it was four or five. And then the last guy, what did he do? He was afraid that the, the ruler would, or the, the master would come back and he would have not received interest. So he buried it in the ground. And what did, what did the ruler say? He said, you are a worthless slave, I think is the word he uses. And so in the same way, we should be stewarding, and the Jews should have been stewarding God's word. And that's what the word oracles means here. If you look at the second half, they were entrusted with something, and that is the oracles of God. This is the same word, we could say the very words of God. Uh, Stephen uses this word in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Remember, he gives this huge long sermon about the history of Israel and how the children of Israel had constantly disobeyed God. And he, he's, what he's doing is he's indicting the Jews because they have this revelation of God, this promise of God, and yet they continue to disobey Him. And, and at one point, Stephen says, speaking of the oracles of God, he says, the oracles of God were delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. So God's very words were given to Moses. And this is really important because as Christians, what do we have if we believe that this Bible is God's Word? We have the oracles of God, right? So in a very same sense as Christians, we have been given God's Word to be stewards of it, to, to guard it, and to seek above all things to live by it. That's what stewarding is about. And that is the issue. So it brings up another question. Because Paul here, he has, depending on how you want to do it, four or five questions. And they all stem from this first one. Because then he says in verse 3, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Like, will, will the fact... That these men who were entrusted with the God's word, who were God gave, he trusted them with his word, what happened? Many of them did not trust God's word. In that it's the same word. The difference is now the relation is swapped. They're not trusting God, even though he gave them his word. And so what Paul is asking is, and it's a rhetorical question for those who don't realize, he's, he's asking this question like, you know this is not true. You, you know that this isn't true because in verse 4 he says, may it never be, or of course not. Of course our unfaithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. It never does. And I, it made me think of the story of Jephthah. So let's turn to Judges chapter 11. 
Because here's a man who actually kept his word. And then we're going to look at a, another New Old Testament passage. We all know this story, I, I think. If you haven't heard it, I would be surprised. But remember, Jephthah, he was kind of a, he was a strange character. Like, why God use him? If you look at the judges from the first chapter to the end, they all get a little bit less, for lack of better words, godly. Because some of the beginning ones were godly men. But as they, it seems like as the book of Judges progresses, the men that God uses are less God-centered. God-righteous men who are trusting God. So, Jephthah was the son of Gilead, as we see in verse 1. And his brothers did not like him. Okay, so he was not liked until something changed. What happened? The people of Ammon came and they took over the land of Gilead. And so then suddenly he was the best brother because they knew he could fight. He was a leader. And so in verse 9 we see... Jephthah's response to them saying, hey, come, come fight with us, fight for us. And he says to the elders of Gilead, probably his brothers, he says, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? He's like, you know, I want to be the head guy of the family now. I want to be the one that gets to carry the family name. Um... And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is a witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. So Jephthah's like, okay, I'm in. Well, and as Jephthah is going out to battle, you remember this, he made a promise to God. Remember that promise? He, he says, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to you. How many times have you yourself or have heard of someone saying, you know, God, if, if you do this for me, I'll do that. Or if you, I mean, how many, I've heard this in, from guys in prison all the time. They're like, Lord, if you get me out of prison, then I will follow you. And most of the times in our lives and in situations like that, what happens we get out of the situation and we forget about God. But in this case, he didn't. So God gave him victory despite his strange character. And when he comes home, we see something. What happens? When he comes home, in verse 34, it says, When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. What happened in verse 35? He hadn't forgotten his vow. 
He had every intention of keeping his vow. And he said, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. So here we have a tragic result to a promise made. Here uh, a man who is empowered by the Spirit of the Lord to overcome the enemies of God, he unfortunately is making a promise, not thinking about, well, what if God requires me my most prized possession? When he gets home, it's his daughter, his only daughter. And I think, I don't think it's an accident that it's his only. I think it's a picture of Christ fulfilling his promise to us. This is a very vulgar example. It's a very low example of what Christ, God did through Christ on the cross. But that is the thing. Men typically do not keep their word. So let us look in Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23, verse 19. And it's interesting that in Numbers 23, who is speaking? Balaam. Remember the, the prophet who said he wouldn't go, and then he ended up going, and the donkey is the only one that sees that God is against him. And then God opens the mouth of the donkey to speak, and then Balaam still asks God, well, can I still go? Can I still go? And eventually he gets there and he, and I, I would say I heard a really good sermon, I think it was Monday, Tuesday, on this very chapter. He tried to curse God's people, but he couldn't. God would not allow him to curse God's people. And what he says in Numbers 23, 19 is, God is not a man. This is the problem. Oftentimes we think God is a man. We treat him like a man, and when we realize that he's not a man, we don't understand him. It makes it difficult, yes. He says, God is not a man that he should lie. So his main argument is, God is not a man. He's going to do what he says. Nor a son of man that he should repent. He doesn't need to repent of what he's said or done. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? Balaam knew full well that if God blessed, the people would be blessed. If God cursed, the people would be cursed. And that's why when we read later on about Balaam, that he advises Balak to entice the Israelites to intermarry with them, to come to their idol festivals. And eventually, God brings a curse on Israel. So many such that 27,000 men and women are killed by God. And it only ends 
when a man, the son of Aaron, kills a couple caught in this sin. And how often do we invite the curse of God in our lives because we disobey? That's what Balaam understood. He, he knew that he couldn't curse God's people, but God could. If he could get the people of Israel to sin and to live in sin, then God would curse them. We see that in De- Deuteronomy. If you want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is what Paul is getting at. Paul is trying to show us and I'll, I'll, I'll read the quotation he has here shortly. Paul is trying to show us that it is God is faithful to all His Word, not just the parts we like, right? If we look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 2, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all. I think, I think that's a mistranslation. It probably should be some, right? Some of his commandments? Maybe? Okay, no. All his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. If, there's a, there's a if, then I will do this. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he goes down and lists, like, if you are overtaken by God's blessings, you're going to feel so overwhelmed with his blessings, you're not going to know what to do. That's what I see here. But there's the flip side. What happens if you don't obey? Verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today that all, all, maybe just some, right? Maybe it's some here. No, it's not. It's all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Oftentimes, we love to quote Deuteronomy 28, 1, and all the way up to 14. But we get to 15, and uh, that was for some other people. God is a God of love, he, he, and we define love wrong there. God is a God of love, he, He's not going to bring judgment on me. No, God is faithful to His Word, Period. And we see that in a verse that I quoted not too long ago in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'll read 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments 
that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But, this is a very big but right here. This is, if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. He's talking about a promise that started with Abraham. This promise had been constantly passed down from generation to generation. And what did God do? He fulfilled the promise. But many didn't enter. Why? They didn't believe. They weren't willing to fight. And once they were in... The book of Judges shows they let, they didn't obey completely. But God was long-suffering. He gave him, gave him a king in Saul. Saul, actually he didn't give him, that was their choice. Saul didn't end up following God in the end. But God gave him a king after his own heart in David and his descendants to the point where Jesus is the, the complete fulfillment of God's promises. So if we look back to Romans, we've established that God's word can be for our good and for our seeming bad. From our perspective, he said, may it never be, let God be found true Though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So this quote is from Psalm 51. What do we know about Psalm 51, those who remember? It's David's cry for mercy and grace. Why? Because David had sinned with Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband. And so in Psalm 51, David is crying out to God, have mercy on me. I know that I deserve your judgment. He knew God's law. He knew what God had said. And so in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For what purpose? So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's what Paul is quoting. He's saying, 
exactly what I just said. He's saying, I have sinned. It is our sin that brings God's judgment. It is not God's unfaithfulness. God is faithful to complete His promises and faithful to complete His curses. Throughout the Old Testament, God is merciful, absolutely. If you read the story of Israel from the time of Moses, especially, up and through the coming of Christ, you see a constant people who God is calling back to Himself. He's sending them into exile so that they will see that they need Him. And then He brings them back to Israel. They build a wall and build a new temple. And still they go back astray. But God continues to show mercy while judging. God's mercy is great. And yet, these people unlike everyone around them, have God's express revelation. Like we had talked about. They had been entrusted with God's revelation. They had been trusted with His Word to be good stewards of His Word. But in reality, they hadn't. They had only proved that they could not keep His Word. So yes, they were... They weren't at an advantage because they had God's Word. Just as we today, as believers, have His Word and we have His Spirit. Paul understood that it was his sin that had brought God's judgment. It was the sin of the Jews that had brought God's judgment on the Jews. But it hadn't cut them off. So then we come to our our third question. So, first question, well, what is the advantage of being a Jew? They had the words of God, the very words of God. The second, well, if if some didn't believe, doesn't that nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. No. Their unbelief brought God's judgment because God had spoken that He would judge. God had given a full picture of what would happen. There's, there's no, this is the interesting thing. With God, there's not an in-between. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. God didn't say, well, there's this middle territory where there's a real gray line. You, you can kind of totter that area and you're not sure if God's going to judge you or not. No, God is clear. There is no purgatory. We're not going to get to the end of our life and be like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not going to get to the end of my life and be on my deathbed or if God returns, I'll be going up with Him. But if I were on my deathbed, I'm not going to be there wondering if I'm going to heaven or not. Just as I pray that none of you will. And lastly, in this section, I, I forgot about this verse in Nehemiah chapter 9. I want to read this. Nehemiah was a scribe. What was his job? To preserve the Word of God. That's what the job of the scribes was to constantly copy the Word of God, to make sure that it stayed pure. And they, the, the, the Jewish scribes, if there was one thing they did do well, is that copying the Word of God. They had a specific rule. 
they counted every letter. They counted everything because they knew if they got to a certain point and had lost count, then they had missed a letter or they had missed something they needed to have in, in the writing. So they knew, okay, there are a certain number of, of letters between this Genesis 1-1 and Exodus whatever. Like these guys were, I mean, just intense. So Nehemiah 9, 32-33 says, Now therefore our God, the great... Again, this, this is again just... Again, I feel like we need to emphasize this. Our great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. So he's come out of captivity. Remember this. Nehemiah has come out of captivity. He's seen God's justice, his judgment on the people of Israel, and he's still saying he's keeping covenant, that he's full of loving kindness, or this is the Old Testament word for mercy. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have kept, not kept your law, nor paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you have gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders our Levites, and our priests. Nehemiah understood this principle. This principle is taught throughout the Old Testament that God's judgment had come upon the people of Israel because they had ignored His long-suffering. He had sent multiple prophets, multiple men to deliver the good news. But they ignored it. They didn't want to turn from their sin. They loved it too much. And so God brought judgment. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying. The gospel is being preached to Gentiles because God has brought His judgment on the Jews at that point. So, if God is justified whether we sin or not, if God is given glory whether we sin or not, Verse 5 is the question that Paul has. or I don't think he has it. I think he's addressing an issue. He says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not righteous, is he? Or unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. So, 
if God gets the glory, whether we sin or not, then does it... Why, why are we judged? Why does God judge us? Because He said He would. And that's what He's getting at. In verse, in verse 6, He says, May it never be. God is not unrighteous for putting, inflicting His wrath on wicked men. For otherwise, he says in the second half, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? So up to this point in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans, and then even here, he's talked about God's judgment, God's faithfulness to do what he has promised. And how can God judge the world and not judge the Jews? How can God judge any man if he says, well, you know... I'm still getting glory no matter what. No. There is a greater glory, I think, when we live for Christ. God will be magnified at the end. Period. There will not be a day when God is not magnified. When we get to the end, there's a song, maybe maybe Joseph can pull it up, that I really like. Um just talking about how worthy Christ is, how worthy God is. And I think oftentimes these are questions that many use to deny following Christ, to deny following God. Well, if, if He's going to get the glory, why does it matter? Paul addresses this throughout. And then in verse 7, he he. Kind of, I feel like seven and chapter seven and chapter five are the same question, but asked differently, right? Because he says, "But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner?" So, in layman's term, or in a, in my translation, I I didn't go from the Greek, just so you know. Uh, but in my translation of this question, I said, so, so this Jew's sin and God's just dealing with the sins of the Jews glorifies His righteousness. Doesn't, doesn't that make it okay? It's kind, of, it's kind of the same question. Or maybe we could say differently, if my sinful lifestyle, let's bring it to us, if my sinful lifestyle leads to God's receiving glory, should I really be judged as a sinner? Or, or you could say, let's sin so that good will come. That's what, that's what people are accusing Paul of saying. They're accusing Paul of saying, oh, let's just do evil and oh, good will come out of it. God will be glorified. No. Paul says, Paul doesn't even give time to this one. What did he say? Their condemnation is just. He's like, they're... This is complete rebellion against God. God will judge sin. And this is extremely important. If we do not tell people that God will judge their sin, we are missing out. And they're not going to be true disciples. If they do not realize, 
as we should realize today that we are sinners in need of God's grace, then we can't be his disciples. We're not going to get into chapter verse 9 and following. I I felt like it was way too much. Um, But when we get to 9 through especially verse 18, we see that we are wicked and need a Savior. I thought we would get there, but I decided that uh, we don't need to get there today. This is a good lead up to that because if we don't realize that our sin deserves God's justice, that God is the one who makes the law, God is the one who has determined who will be punished and why, God must be seen as judge. We are not the ones who determine whether God will judge someone or not. God shows us in His Word why someone will be judged and who will be judged. And we as a church should be encouraging one another, confronting sin into one another with love. But God will judge sin. Our condemnation is rightly condemned We are rightly condemned if we think that evil, doing evil, will give God glory the way that it should. No, we weren't created to live that way. We weren't created to sin against God. We were created to glorify Him and to find joy in Him. So application for these eight verses. First, as Christians, we have been given complete revelation. The Bible canon is closed, right? Let us not follow the example of the Jews. They, They didn't have complete revelation. They had enough clues. They had enough prophecy. But what did they do? They didn't believe. They didn't steward what they had. And so we too... We need to be faithful to God's Word. That's what I'm, 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 I'm seeing here. <coughs> We're so quick to go read the book of someone. I'm not going to name names because I might get in trouble. Like, for example, I will name a name. One I really like, A.W. Tozer. Great books. But if I'm not reading God's Word and I'm constantly spending my time reading this author and that author and Da, da, da. What am I saying? Where's the authority for my life? Where, where am I being fed? Those books? Yeah. Tozer would be saying the same thing. Don't read my books until you are reading God's Word. They should be supplemental to God's Word. And, and it's easy for... I love to read. So it's easy for me to be like, oh man, I, I've got... I literally have a bookcase and a box I just got from Thomas's dad uh, <laughs> of books that I have not read. And I doubt that I will ever read all of them. I may read some of them, but it's so easy because I like to read to pick those up. But, and they're great, they're good, but if they distract from time in, in the Word, then that's a problem. And so, 
I, I was just thinking about the Jews. Like, so the Jews, they had God's word, but what else did they have? Tradition. Remember, they, they had all this written tradition. The Mishnah, uh, is it Mishnahs? I can't remember the name of it, but they had all these traditions written out. And so they would go back. I mean, they were constantly reading that and they had forgotten God's word. So a lot of the, a lot of the lawyers or the ones who understood the law of God, they had read the Old Testament, but they, they had also gotten into all this other extra curricular reading. And it had taken more authority in their life than God's word. Their opinions were more important. Oh, man, I got to go read this, this uh, scribe. He, he wrote this great, uh, uh, oh, they're called Targums. Sorry. That's what they're called. So, you know, I, I want to go read the Targum of Jonathan. That's an actual one. Um, I mean, he has such a great interpretation of Scripture. It's kind of like a commentary. So, if I, if I enjoy commentaries more than God's Word, there's a problem. That doesn't mean they're not helpful, but they're not the authority. And so, as Christians, my first application is we, we have to be faithful to God's Word and, and judge everything that we read according to God's Word. Everything that we hear according to God's Word. Because if you get on social media today, you're going to find people throwing out stuff that is not in accordance to God's Word. I promise you, there will be people who are sharing truth. But there are a lot of people who are being so influenced by the world, so influenced by everything that they're reading that isn't God's Word, or hearing that's not God's Word, that they're being led astray. And so we have to be faithful to the revelation of God's Word. They're His very words. Second, we must not, we never should, Determine the truthfulness and faithfulness of God based upon whether it works for someone else. I know this isn't popular, but we do not and never should determine the truthfulness and faithfulness of God based upon whether it works for someone else. God is faithful, period. God is faithful to His Word, and sometimes... You know, I don't know. There are situations that happen, has happened here in the last couple of years I don't understand. I have to be honest. I don't. Because I believe, and I'm friends with those people, and I saw what they went through. I saw their faithfulness. I don't understand everything. But I do know I will not determine whether God's faithful and truthful on anyone else. His word must be the final authority. It's not whether Charles Spurgeon died with some disease as to whether I'm going to believe that God's Word says He heals. Right? And so, we must make a commitment. God, I'm going to trust Your Word. Even if everyone I love doesn't experience it in the way that I think, I'm going to trust Your Word. God is faithful. He can restore us completely from where we were. He can do the impossible. He always has been able to do. What is impossible with man is not impossible with God. And I think this kind of goes back to where I talked about 
oftentimes we think of God as man. A man. And that's the problem. Yes, we are created, created in the image of God, but God is so much greater. All that we know and have is created by Him. He is all-powerful. Number three. You can choose to do or not do God's will, but you do not get to determine your punishment. I've heard it said another way. You can choose to sin, but you don't get to choose your consequences. Unfortunately, in the world we live in today, we want to choose to sin and we want to choose how we get punished. Well, that's not just. That's what the law says. You just think in the world. Man, he's getting five years for doing this. Well, the, the law says that. I mean, he, he, he knew the law. He knew that judgment would come. He knew it was illegal. And then he's, he's arguing, well... I shouldn't receive, or she, who, who, who cares what it is? I shouldn't receive that punishment. Well, that's what's in the law book. In the same way, we can choose to obey. We can choose to disobey. We can choose to trust. Or we can choose to, uh, to not trust. But we cannot determine our own punishment. The wages of sin is death, Period. There is no other option. I think that's what Paul is getting to here, in, especially in the last half of what we read today. Paul is saying, yeah, you, you can sin. Great, go sin. But if you sin, you don't get to choose whether you get punished or not. God is just. And lastly, as a warning especially, If you seek to justify your sin by indicting God's righteousness, be wary. Because that's what they're doing. That's what this question is getting at. If, If we think that we can indict God's righteousness to make us feel good about ourselves, that's a problem. That's what the world does when they say, there's evil in the world, so there must not be a God. Isn't that what they're saying? They're saying... Uh, you know, you say God is righteous, but we see evil in the world, so God must not be righteous. That's the whole point of that question. Or maybe we think, oh, when God doesn't do something the way we think, or we, we get angry at God. Right? We get angry at God, and then we say, you know, they didn't deserve that, or... What, what are we doing? We're indicting the righteousness and faithfulness of God. As though we are in the position of God looking down, seeing the whole situation. But we don't have a right, whether it's good or bad. The, the result. So we should not seek to justify our sin by indicting God's righteousness. We need to be wary of that. Next week... As long as a baby doesn't come between then and now. Or the Lord doesn't come back, which would be great too. Um, we're going to get into the rest of this verse, this chapter. Probably not the entirety, but... Um, so I, 
Next Saturday, I'm going to be going out in the neighborhoods around here and inviting people to share the gospel. Or inviting people to church as well as sharing the gospel. Um, And if you would like to join me, we'll figure out a time, probably either midday or right before dinner. So, um, anyways, if... We'll, we'll pray, and then, Joseph, do you know what song I'm talking about? Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson? See if you can find a lyric video, because I think that would be really helpful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to your word. We thank you that even in our unfaithfulness, Lord, you show mercy and grace to us. We don't deserve the mercy you've shown us. Help us, Lord, not to bring judgment upon you or, or to, to, to doubt your faithfulness, Lord, because of the sin of this world. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be running to your word, to hear from you, to spend time in prayer over your word, meditating on your word and, and making it an essential part of our lives. Lord, you are holy and righteous. You are faithful in your justice and judgment. Lord, help us not to forget what you've done and that you are going to judge the world in the end. Help us to live as though we believe these words, that we would reach the lost, that we would seek above all things, Lord, to live the gospel in our lives, to live as though you are our King and Ruler. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.